Thank you. Children's grades K through 3 are now dismissed to children in worship right through that door. And, you know, I had somebody ask, or they presented me with a pastoral struggle last week, and they said, I don't know if I like Daryl better leading worship or preaching. And I was like, well, I think that's a good problem to have, and we can find a solution. You know, we can work with that. Uh, so thank you, Daryl and the band. We got a couple new members this week, and they're all sounding good. Um, so thank you for that, and uh, good morning. Good morning. Okay. <clears throat> so I want to make sure uh, you could hear me before I start. That's the right order of things. And this morning we're in Genesis chapter 3, and this is the last week for the Gospel Project sermon series. Uh, that's really important distinction. The class keeps going. The sermon series is ending today. Next week we'll be starting a sermon series on the parables of Jesus. I'd love to tell you more about that, but we've got 11 weeks to do that. So today we're going to talk about the Gospel Project. And uh, this one is, we've done Genesis 1, God's good creation. Genesis 2, God's good people, the creation of humanity. And then chapter 3, which is not normally considered a source of good news. But the title of the sermon, the title of the class this morning was Sin and God's Good News from Genesis chapter 3. Not usually where we go to look for it. And this morning, what we are going to be talking about is sin and the introduction of sin into God's creation. And so this is not a uh, fun topic. It's not a happy topic, but it is a good topic because it resonates with our experience. This uh, strikes a chord with everyone, every worldview in the history of the world and every person you interact with has some explanation for why there is pain and suffering, why there is death and sickness, and why there are all of these uh, horrors in the world that we see on a weekly and even daily basis. And so the, the recognition of that is so universal. It's so basic that you can't get around it. In fact, it's so prevalent that it made Genesis 1 and 2 really hard to preach on. Because we talk about God's good creation in chapter 1, untainted by sin, and we talk about humanity in chapter 2, also untainted by sin, and Daryl did a great job of it last week, but it's hard for us to even imagine ourselves, imagine other people uh, without the stain of sin, you know, without uh, this gnawing at each other and hurting one another, and the pain that not only that we give others, but that we receive uh, from others. And you may remember, uh, probably not, I don't think anyone would have committed its memory. But when I talked about lament last year, we talked about kind of four different dimensions of sin. There's uh, the sense in which I'm personally a sinner. I commit acts of sin. There's the personal level of sin where someone, I'm the victim of someone else's sin. Someone sins against me. They've hurt me. Uh, so I've hurt them. They've hurt me. Uh, but then there's also these like corporate levels of sin, like me as a people, uh, we as a people, as a church, or as a people, or as Cincinnatians, or as Americans, or uh, as 21st century citizens, uh, have sinned against other groups of people. And there's a sense in which other groups of people have sinned against uh, you know, my group of people. So there's corporate sin uh, that you commit, corporate sin that you are in the receiving end. There is individual sin that you commit. There's individual sin that you're on the receiving end. Long story short, everyone is encountering the effects of sin everywhere all the time. It's 
It is everywhere. And so if you ask them, well, you know, what does this sin look like? Which we're going to define sin and we're going to talk about what it looks like, but that's not all we're going to, we are going to get to Jesus. We're going to get to the gospel from Genesis chapter three. That is after all the gospel project. But in answer to the question, what does sin look like? Uh, there's this from uh, Cornelius Plantica Jr., who's written a book called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he says this, The whole range of human miseries, from restlessness and estrangement, through shame and guilt, to the agonies of daytime television, all of them tell us that things in human life are not as they ought to be. Sin outstrips other human troubles by perverting special human excellences. Sin lies at the root of such big miseries as loneliness, restlessness, estrangement, shame, and meaninglessness. It's disease and death. And the big idea this morning is that people, humanity, sinned against God and ruptured our creative purpose, but God has provided forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, so all the frustrations, uh, frustrations, anxiety, uh, pain that we encounter on a daily basis, whether at work or at school, uh, when you turn on the news at the end of the day and you hear about new horrors there, uh, when a friend gets sick, when a loved one dies, we all get this sense that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Things aren't right. And so this morning we're going to move into Genesis chapter 3 and we'll have an explanation of this. By the way, uh, we're going to have, uh, I think this is probably even in our culture of familiar narrative. Uh, so, but we're going to try to hear what it's saying to us today. And, you know, it's got, it starts with the serpent. And so, you know how sometimes Google, when you uh, start searching things a lot, it starts showing you other things it thinks you might be interested in. And so I've been in Genesis 3 all week, so it thinks I really love sin. But um, <laughs> but it's also got the serpent in there. And the very first thing that I like was, you know, waking up, grab my phone, scrolling through Facebook. And the first article it pulls up is uh, <laughs> this woman in Virginia was working in her garden and found a two-headed viper in her garden. And it's like a really rare occurrence and really horrifying for me. I have a particular fear of snakes. I attribute that to watching Indiana Jones at too young of an age. And uh, I was like, that is not what I wanted to see this morning. Thank you, Google. Uh, you can put that algorithm away. Just because I'm looking up a passage with a serpent in it does not mean I want to see pictures of them while I'm laying in bed. Um, but now when I'm reading Genesis 3, I'm picturing that two-headed viper. Because it's, you know, just a really close-up picture they give. Don't look it up. You won't sleep tonight. But anyway... Uh, so we're in Genesis chapter 3, and the first idea that we want to get to here is that sin is defiance against God. Now, as you've heard this narrative before, you might think, well, they had a piece of fruit off a tree. What's such a big deal about that? And we're going to talk about what was such a big deal about that. But there's a couple things we want to say before we get there. Uh, and the first is this. There's a word that we frequently use when we're referring to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Is anyone familiar with that word? It's the fall. Okay, yeah. So I wanted to be careful because I was going to start doing hints at first service, and then I realized, like, if I say it's a four-letter word, and then I say it starts with, I was like, nope, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, not when I'm encouraging participation. Um, 
So it's frequently referred to as the fall. Um, the problem is, and I, you know, that's a pretty well-recognized word throughout the history of Christianity. But fall, so let me show you something. If I put my water bottle on the pulpit right there, and then I, you know, wow, I'm really good at this. Uh, it's supposed to have done, oh, that. You see that? You catch it over there? That's, that's a fall. The fall, you know, that falling off of there is the result of my negligence. I put it in a situation where it was bound to fall, and even calling it the fall makes it sound like it's God's fault. Um, when actually what's happening here is rebellion. I tend to refer to Genesis chapter 3 as the rebellion. And you're going to see why in a minute, but as we look at the created order, Genesis chapter 1, you see God created everything. He created it good. The, the earth and the heaven, the, the sky and the sea, day and night, it's all created by God. It's all deemed good. And then he creates humanity and gives them dominion, which means they're to rule over the created order. The things he has created, he's entrusted to people to care for. Um, and, and that includes, you know, one another in a sense. But then as you get into chapter 2, it kind of tells the story again in a little more detailed way about the creation of humanity. And he uh, he creates a man, Adam, in verse uh, 215. But then in 218, 220, um, God, the word appears multiple times, and don't panic, uh, but it says Adam needs a helper. And so he creates Eve. Now, don't worry. Men don't get excited at all because helper does probably not mean what you think it means. Um, if you read the Psalms, you will see David frequently refer to God as being his helper. Does that mean God is his servant? Does that mean God is less than him? It does not mean someone is less than you. If you tutor at Pleasant Hill Academy, you are a helper <clears throat> to a child who is trying to learn how to <clears throat> do math or read, that does not necessarily make you less than them. Although, <clears throat> even better, in the Christian uh, view of things, uh, in the way that Christ has set up his kingdom, the servant is the greatest of all anyway. So even if it is a matter of service, that's how Jesus ranks his kingdom. And he says he is the, ult- he is the ultimate servant. He paid the ultimate servant's price, and that is why he sits on the throne. So don't be bothered by that word helper. That's actually a positive uh, term here. But he says, you know, man's created, creates woman as a helper, and the two of them have dominion over the rest of the created order. Trees and plants and animals. In fact, it's a name each of those things, which is like showing a sign of authority. You know, uh, God names things. In fact, throughout the Bible, he renames people once he has a special purpose for them. And it shows his His sovereignty, his uh dominion over them. And so this is an incredible responsibility that's been entrusted. So you have three levels of authority. You have God governing humanity and humanity is put in charge of governing creation. Okay. So that's the backdrop. So now I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter three. It'll be on the screens. I'm going to read it to you. And if you just please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to open God's word. Father God, we thank you for the gift that is your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we read, that we would see with new eyes, that we would receive uh, the word which you are giving to us, and that we would see uh, the gospel and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. 
<clears throat> so, beginning in verse 1, this is 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Pause. If you go back and read, it's only one page behind you. God didn't say that. This is what happens. This is the first problem. God didn't say not to touch it. But to see what happened, that's sometimes what we do with rules God gives us. We build a little fence around them. And then the rule seems more severe than it actually is because he didn't say you didn't have to touch it. That's in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, I think. He gives that instruction to Adam. Uh says, you may surely eat of every tree, but the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. So you see how one little addition there starts that you're already misunderstanding God. And so we see something starting to happen here. The serpent says, did you really say that? And she said, yeah, you really said that. But then she doesn't say what he really said. So we've already got a little bit of a problem here. Uh, Lest you die. Then resuming in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So do you see the problem here? It should be starting to emerge. When you remember, okay, what we just said in Genesis chapter 2, it's God ruling over humanity who together, man and woman, are ruling over creation. What happened here? Creation goes to the woman, and she does what creation tells her to do, not what God tells her to do, and she's not ruling over creation. And then she, instead of being Adam's helper, is the serpent's helper and gives fruit to her husband, and then he takes it, which is both of them submitting to creation rather than ruling over creation. So the way this story should have gone is serpent comes to Eve, Adam takes a shovel, chops off serpent's head. The Bible's a lot shorter if it happens that way. You'd, you'd be able to fit it on a pamphlet. But that's not what happened. In fact, Eve could have taken a shovel and done the same thing. That's what should have happened. That if, if they were exercising the dominion that God entrusted to them, God gave to them, that is how it should have happened. But that's not what happened. Instead, God says, this is how I order everything that I've created, and the complete opposite happens. The creation calls humanity to do something. Humanity submits to the creation rather than to God. And then, if you've ever raised toddlers, the next one, next part will sound really familiar, the blame game of, uh, who did this? It's like, well, that woman you gave me did this to me. It's like trying to make God responsible for Adam's mistake, and then the woman says, well, it's a serpent. And it's like... I set up a system for this. I knew something, you know, it's like he knew something like this would happen and said, you guys have authority and dominion over creation. And if something comes up in creation, you are to deal with it. And instead they, they don't. And so when we define what sin is and how all sin emerged from this, it's not simply eating of the fruit, which by the way, is not an apple. There's no word apple in here. 
It could have been an apple, but it could have been a pomegranate. I don't know. But it's not in here. That's just from a, a uh, painting a few centuries ago where someone was trying to depict this and they painted an apple. But I just think it's interesting to point things like that out because a lot of times we see things in the text that aren't there because we've been trained by someone else to see them that way. And it's not, it's not wrong to think of it as an apple. It's just not necessarily there. Um, and I do love apples, so, you know, I could be enticed by an apple. But uh, when we think of how all sin emerged from this, it gets to the core of what is sin. And so here's a lengthy, and this is, don't even try, if you're a note taker, don't even try to write all this down. Just, just listen. Sin is lawlessness and faithlessness. It is missing the target. It's wandering from the path. It's straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness. Sin is deafness. It is overstepping of a line and the failure to reach that line. It's both transgression and shortcoming. It's both what you've done and what you've not done. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. And in sin, people attack, evade, or neglect their divine calling. You attack, evade, or neglect your divine calling. And you actually see all three happen here. This is what were Adam and Eve supposed to do. They attack what they're supposed to do by going in the opposite order. They neglect what they're supposed to have done in dealing with the serpent. And they evade responsibility for their actions, which is why when we read in the rest of the Bible about the condition of the human heart and we're all children of Adam and Eve in that sense that we are raised in the post-Genesis 3 era, Jesus describes us like this. From out of the heart of humans comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And Paul, in Romans chapter 3, and he's actually just quoting the Psalms here, says it this way, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, we did say that it's sin and good news. It's the title of the sermon, right? So, so far you're thinking, Genesis 3, not seeing the good news yet. But uh, it is here. And as we continue, we're going to start reading again in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verses 14 to 21. And it goes like this. Now this is, um, after a little bit of the blame game, God issues out uh, punishments to his creation. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, starting with the serpent, and then he follows up uh, the sequence of events, uh, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I, shall, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so, we see God's punishment here, which by the way, uh, God is completely sovereign over all of this creation. He doesn't have to issue out punishments. The fact that he decided, so what God could have done here is just said, no, I'm just going to wipe it all out. I'll just do creation over again until we get it right. Right? Does anyone say he doesn't have the right to do that? Good. Uh, he has the right to do that, but he chooses not to. He is invested in his creation. He is invested in his people and in his relationship with the people he's created and with humanity and with his creation and says, I'm not going to blow it all up and start over again, but there are going, there is going to be discipline. There are going to be consequences for this. And so it's gracious for God to even entertain uh, this notion of disciplining. In fact, in the New Testament, it reminds us that God disciplines those he loves. It's not a popular verse. I don't see it on bumper stickers a lot. Um, God disciplines those he loves, which means if you are in relationship with Jesus and you don't ever experience or feel the sense of God's discipline, you should be worried. God disciplines those he loves. That is how he keeps us on the right path and corrects us. Uh, and so discipline is not a bad thing. In fact, it's discipline in and of itself is an act of grace. And here's, if you do want to write down a short definition of sin, here it is. It's three words. It's culpable shalom breaking. Yeah, it's a great three words. And that's also from the same uh, same author I quoted earlier. But here's what that means. In Genesis 1 and 2 is a term that in the in the Old Testament and in, in uh, uh, the Jewish religion is the term shalom, which we translate as peace. But that's, the word shalom has a lot packed into it. Shalom refers to the created order as God created it. Genesis 1 and 2, things living in harmony and in justice and in balance and in love and in grace. And it is right relationships between humanity and creation, humanity and humanity, and humanity and God. And so, anytime you break any one of those boundaries, that's shalom breaking. You're breaking the harmony. Anytime you don't treat God's creation the way that you should, anytime you don't treat another person the way that you should, and anytime you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are breaking shalom. Which, and so sin is much bigger than sometimes we give it credit for. Sometimes we think sin is, uh, you know, a specific act, but Jesus says it actually comes from the heart. It's, it's what all of our actions flow out of is the heart. And um, so we see that sin is this culpable shalom breaking. And so God has every every right to destroy humanity, creation, start over. But instead, he issues uh, punishment and he keeps his relationship with creation. And so this is key because this is setting up God's gracious initiative. In fact, it's, it doesn't just end there, the grace in Genesis 3. Look what he says to the woman he says, I will put enmity between you, uh, uh, you and the woman. This is to the serpent, actually, in verse 15. Between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, but you will just bruise his heel. 
And what that's ultimately pointing to, the ultimate one who destroys the serpent, who conquers the serpent, who victories over sin and death, is Jesus. He's born as a human, the son of Eve. The offspring of Eve eventually is the one who will defeat the serpent. And in fact, if you don't believe that connection, you can go read in Revelation there multiple times where it refers to that that old serpent, that ancient serpent. And it's referring to the devil and it's Satan and it's uh, saying that uh, Jesus has triumphed over him. He has bound him. He's conquered him. And uh, that is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3. Which that's where we start to see the good news emerge. But here's and this is like just God's grace upon God's grace upon God's grace. So he he offers them a discipline and he offers them life. You know, not not life eternal uh, yet, uh, although that's coming in his plan. But he offers them life, and then he uh, offers them this discipline, these guides of how to stay uh, straight, and also here are consequences for your actions. But then he kicks him out of the garden, and he could have said, okay, I'm just going to throw you out there naked and let you fend for yourself in the wild for a few days. Um, I know it sounds like a reality show, but what he actually does is in 321, that passage ends with this, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Even in his punishment, he can't help but be gracious. He says, I'm going to, you're done with the garden but I'm not done with you. And I'm still going to clothe you. I'm still going to provide for you. I'm still going to care for you. And I've already provided the means for fixing the problem of sin that you've introduced in the offspring of Eve. And so this is, we learn so much about who God is from the opening pages of the Bible. He can't help but act graciously towards his creation. And in chapter four, which you guys covered in the class, we don't have time to cover here. Uh, we learn that sin and death, as uh, sin, death as a result of sin, leads to death. And there's this new tagline throughout chapter 4. It describes the genealogy, the offspring of Adam and Eve. And with each one it says, and they died. And they died, and they died, and they died. And that's actually a new twist in the storytelling. That hasn't happened yet in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, that is supposed to show, like, this is what... Humanity has brought about God's good creation. God created uh, humanity. God created everything that is. And through humanity's mistakes, now death is introduced and we see the prevalence of it because people die now. And this connects to, uh, this is, I did not give this to the slide people. So just listen. This is in Romans chapter five. It says, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin uh, was indeed was in the world before the law was given, Uh, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those uh, sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And then he goes on to say, this is Paul writing to the Romans, He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What he's saying is, there's the first Adam who introduces sin and death and pain and brokenness into the world, and there's the second Adam who is Jesus. And by the acts of one 
person, sin entered the world, but through the acts of another one person, justification and life flow forth from that. And so that's uh, what's being hinted at here. And here's the quote from the Gospel Project that I'll share with you. is that God promised that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the promised one who defeated sin and death once for all. And that's the end of the quote. And so you may still be wondering and say, well, you know, this Genesis 3, it's called sin and God's good news. I see the sin. Hopefully you're starting to see the good news. But let me tell you, there's uh, people in my generation who are not Christians, didn't grow up Christians. Uh, this story makes a lot of sense. And understanding the depth of it understands the depths of Christianity because it's actually a relief to some people. Because some people see Christianity as just getting souls into heaven has no concern for earthly suffering, for oppression, for uh, issues of, of justice. But um, what this passage shows us is that uh, Jesus' victory over sin is over every kind of sin. It's over shame and guilt and brokenness and betrayal and sexism and racism and depression and loneliness and restlessness and meaninglessness and disease and death. And here's the bottom line. People my age lose interest in Christianity because we think they think it has nothing to say about any of those things that we encounter in day-to-day life when nothing could be further from the truth. And so here is, this is my main point that I want you to take from the day, is that everything that was lost in the fall, everything that encompasses shalom, is what is going to be reclaimed by Jesus. Here's another way to say it, and I like this one even better. The scope of redemption is as wide and as deep as the scope of the fall. The scope of redemption, what Jesus comes and what he claims victory over, is as wide and as deep as the scope of the fall. Otherwise, it's not full victory for Jesus. But Jesus completely defeated the enemy on the cross. And so when Jesus returns, his victory will be the complete restoration, renewal, and rest, and um, rebuilding of his creation and to be even better uh, than it had been before. And so because we have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ and given his righteousness, we trust in God and his grace as we fight against sin in our lives and proclaim the reason for the hope that we found in Jesus Christ.